You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, would you turn there right now? Colossians chapter 3. And uh, I'm actually going to invite my friend Marie to come up and read the teaching text for us today. Um, last week we looked at how we wanted to be a people who were marked by Jesus' presence. And so we spent some time talking and looking at that. Today we're looking at how we want to become a people who are formed in Jesus' image. So a conversation about formation. So we'll look at Colossians chapter 3. Marie, thanks for reading the text. Marie and her husband Rob are community group leaders in our church and, uh, and do lots of other things as well. But uh, I wanted to mention that because we're going to talk about community groups later on. And it's because of people like Marie and her husband and many others in this room who are group leaders that we're able to do what we do. So would you stand to your feet? We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 12. Good morning. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Marie. You can take a seat. Okay. Well, let's talk about formation. Formation is is something that every one of us is experiencing every single day. We're all being shaped. We're all being being formed by our environments and by our culture, by the world around us. Formation is not a Christian thing. It's not a Christian idea. It's actually a human thing. But the question that I want to ask you today is, is what's forming you? And maybe follow it up with an awkward question. When you look at your life and the person that you're becoming day after day after day, do you like the direction that you're headed? Because consciously or unconsciously, we are all being formed into something by the things that we're watching, by the voices that we're listening to, by the people we surround ourselves with, by the habits that we embrace day after day after day, whether good or bad. All of these things have a very formational effect on us. They shape us into a certain kind of people. And here's the challenge with it, is that most of the time, we don't even recognize that formation is happening. There are these forces that are at play all around us that really do affect the people we're becoming, but we don't notice. It's just like the the air that we breathe, or you could say it's like the water that we're swimming in. Uh, I, I would imagine maybe you've heard the story of the two goldfish who are swimming side by side in the water, and, and one goldfish looks over at the other goldfish and says, uh, hey, how's the water? And the other goldfish looks back and says, what's water? 
And I, and I think it's an interesting question for us to consider. Do goldfish see water? I don't think so. Goldfish see what's in the water. Absolutely they do, but I don't think, and to be clear, I haven't done the proper study on this, so I could be wrong. But, but, but I don't think that goldfish see water itself, and yet, it's there. It's their environment, universal, but completely invisible. It shapes everything that they do as fish. It shapes everything that they see, but they're unaware of it. I think that's kind of like what it's like to live within a culture. There are all these different ideologies, and there's all these different things that are being taught in the classrooms of our schools, or in the, in the undertones of that Netflix series that we binge on the weekend, or in that billboard that's posted in front, front of H&M, or the, the, the way that the news source presents the facts. See, none of it has a neutral effect on us. These things are shaping us, usually in small ways, not always noticeable at first, but they're making these micro-adjustments to the way that we think to the way that we view ourselves, to the way that we look at reality and the world around us. And just like the goldfish doesn't see water, so often we don't, we don't understand or see the impact that our culture is having on us. But I wonder, going back to the question, what's forming you? Is it possible that we are being discipled by Netflix? Is it possible that, that we are being catechized by the algorithm of tech giants? In many cases, I think so. And to be clear, I'm not anti-tech. I own an iPhone, I have a Netflix account, I'm preaching from a laptop right now. But I think it's important for us to pause and, and, and to take a moment to recognize that living in the midst of the culture that we find ourselves in, it's not having a neutral effect on us. The world is forming us. Technology, it's forming us. Especially in the quantity that we're engaging with it. And every single day, there is a war that's going on for our hearts, and for our minds. I was reading a, a German pastor and theologian who, who lived and led a church um, back in the time of Nazi Germany. You may have heard of him before. His name is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer's discipleship training methods were known to be super robust, like lots of reading of scripture, lots of, of study of theology, embracing of spiritual disciplines, and so on. And he had a seminary where he was training uh, future church leaders, and so he would gather them in this training institute, and, and he was known to even have a higher standard for those who were going into leadership. And I guess one day somebody said to, to Bonhoeffer, hey, why do you have to be so intense about this? Like, why does discipleship to Jesus have to be so rigorous? And after pausing for a moment, Bonhoeffer pointed over to where Hitler was training his troops. And then he pointed over to, to where they were standing there in the seminary. And he said, this must be stronger than that. In other words, Bonhoeffer understood that if Christians were going to make it, if they were going to stand up against the pervasive ideologies of Hitler and Nazi Germany, if they were going to present this countercultural vision to the world around them, it was going to take a lot of intentionality. And the forming that was happening in their churches in the midst of Nazi Germany was going to need to be so much stronger than, than, than what Hitler was presenting through his propaganda. And I recognize that we're not living in the midst of Nazi Germany right now, but I think the principle still applies. If we're gonna build strong, resilient disciples of Jesus, if we're gonna be formed into the image of Jesus in the midst of the strong cultural currents of our current society, then we need to engage in some aggressive counterformation out of the ideologies of the world and into the image of Jesus. 
being formed out of the image of the world and into the image of our Savior. But how does that happen? How can we in, be intentional about our formation? Well, let's look again at our teaching text in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Here's how Paul, the author, opens up that section of Scripture. He says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Okay, pause there for a moment. I love the way that Paul starts this section. I think it's actually super important to this conversation about formation. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's the starting place for discipleship. The starting place for our formation is knowing who we are in Christ, knowing where our identity lies. Like, how would you, how would you answer this question if I were to say, who are you? How would you answer that? What would you say? I would imagine many in here would talk about your job or your career Maybe you talk about your marital status or your lack of marital status. Maybe you talk about your age or your ethnicity or your family of origin. And all of that is an important part of who you are. Absolutely. But, but Paul seems to say that, that just as important as that, or maybe more important, if you take a step back, is this fact that you are deeply loved. You are chosen by God. He made you on purpose for a purpose. That before you ever did anything for God, before you corrected any bad habits in your life, before you ever saw the fruit of the Spirit bubbling up in you and growing in you, gentleness and patience, before you ever saw evidence of any of that, God chose you and he loves you. The whole journey of Christian formation happens within the context of grace. See, because of the finished work of Jesus, we are beloved, adopted sons and daughters of God. There's nothing we can do to deserve that love, there's nothing we can do to earn it. It is just grace. You are deeply and profoundly loved right now, just as you are. And this is such an important starting place for the conversation on formation because if we jump right ahead to, to what we can do in order to, to be made in the image of Jesus, before we embrace who we are because of Jesus, then we can find ourselves in a really dangerous place. Like, it's one of those things, it's, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, we, where we have to understand who we are in Jesus before we can understand what we need to do to be formed in Jesus' image. The moment we move, remove the cross from our Christian life, we're toast. We're done. Our Christian formation starts with this understanding that we are God's chosen people, that we are holy and deeply loved, and everything else flows from that place. But do you believe it? Like, do you actually believe that you are deeply loved by God? My answer would be sometimes. <laughs> like, yesterday I had, a, I had a really hard day. And uh, I was feeling super sad. I don't know if it was the change of the season or what the case would be, but it was hard. And as I was preparing for this talk yesterday and rereading through the passage, I, uh, I, I was struck again by these words of Paul. I was swept up in it again remembering that my identity is not found in how good I am as a father or how bad I am as a father. It's not, it's not gauged in how good or bad this talk is. It's in who God says that I am, that I am deeply and profoundly loved. Like, it's one thing to say that God loves people, that God loves the world, that his son died for the world, for the cosmos. Maybe we can wrap our heads around that. But he actually loves you, personally, on your good days and on your bad days. That's what we see in this text, that before we ever do anything, we are loved. That's grace. But let's keep moving. Paul says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, then clothe yourself with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all the virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay, according to Paul, there's this necessary putting on of the character of Christ. This clothing yourself in compassion and kindness and gentleness and all the rest. And I love that idea. Like, I love that, those words from Paul and that call. But if you're anything like me, maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds a lot easier said than done. Like, putting on the fruit of the Spirit is not the same thing as putting on a hoodie or a pair of jeans. It feels a lot more complicated than that. Like, when I hear this metaphor of, of being clothed in, in the, the fruit of the Spirit, what I think about is trying to clothe my 18-month-old daughter in the morning. <laughs> when she's flailing and screaming and slapping me and making her arms limp so that I can't get them in the spots that they need to go. Like, oftentimes, that's a lot more like clothing myself in in these virtues feels like. Like, I kind of want to forgive, but I kind of don't. And I'm kind of just flailing my arms and trying to get out of it. And I think there's all these reasons that we can come up with as to why we don't look more like that. Like, why we don't clothe ourselves in these kind of things, especially in the day and age of, like, the personality test. And, uh, and, and things like, you know, strength finders or, or Enneagram or whatever. It's so easy to explain away why I don't embody the fruit of the Spirit. Well, I'm just an Enneagram one. That's why I don't have empathy. <laughs> that's why I don't feel any sort of compassion. Or, or I, I know I bulldoze over people, but that's because I'm a high achiever. <laughs> I'm an ENFJ, or you could say I'm an Enneagram three. But here's the thing. As we follow Jesus, our personalities should change. As the Spirit works in our lives, over time, we should become more patient with the people around us. We should see evidence of peace in our lives, becoming a non-anxious presence. We should become more forgiving, more compassionate, emotionally healthy as we put, our, put off our old selves made in the image of the world and we put on our new selves in the image of Jesus. See, the goal of the Christian life isn't just to get saved and then wait around for, for us to, ourselves to die or for Jesus to come back so we can go to heaven. It's so much bigger than that. The goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, to be formed in his image, to be a people who live and who talk and who act and who play like him. Then how does that happen? How do we clothe ourselves in the character of Jesus as we see in Colossians chapter 3? Well, to start, it's a work of the Spirit. That's where we started last week. We begin to look like Jesus and and, and take on the personality traits of Jesus as we let the Spirit of God shape us and mold us into his image. That's where it starts, when we invite the Spirit to do a work in our hearts and lives. But also, we are not passive in the equation. We're not just bystanders who wait around for the Holy Spirit to come and to make us holy. As we we read in Colossians chapter 3, we are actively involved in putting off and putting on our new nature in Christ. God actually expects us to be intentional about our own spiritual formation, to partner with the Spirit in the transformative work that he's doing in our lives. So then what does that look like? Like, what does it look like to partner with the Spirit in the work that he's doing in us? Well, I think our text in Colossians gives us a really helpful starting place in understanding the process of formation. Paul seems to say that intentional formation happens in the collision of three things. In the collision of truth, our rhythms, and community. That's what we see right here in our text in Colossians chapter 3. But, but those three categories also show up all throughout the New Testament writings as essential ingredients for discipleship to Jesus. So I want to look at them one at a time. First, truth. 
Look at verse 16 if you have it in front of you. Paul, Paul tells us, he says that we should let the message of Christ dwell among us richly. In other words, saturate yourself in the gospel. We need to locate ourselves within the grander story of God. And here's why this is important. Because there are many pervasive truths and truth claims permeating our culture about what it means to be human, about where our truest identity is found, and the list goes on. And whether we like it or not, these ideas that are swirling around in our culture that we're engaging with on a daily basis, they are forming the way that we think. For example, I was at a Coldplay concert on Friday night. Is anyone else there? I actually saw some of you, okay, so there's some Coldplay fans in the house. They've been my, my favorite band for like, I think since I was like 12 or 13 years old. And so what could be better than standing and jumping and singing with 50,000 other Coldplay fans, right? It was just the best. But as I was there at the concert that night, thinking through the lens of formation, I was recognizing all these subtle ways that Chris Martin and, and his production team were forming the hearts and the minds of the people at Rogers Arena that night with symbols and with flags and with lyrics and pre-roll videos. And it was all forming the way that we interpret reality, for better or for worse. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to these kind of concerts and events. I will likely be there next time Coldplay plays in Vancouver again. But, but as we're in those types of environments, and not just concerts, but really just everyday life, watching ads on YouTube or videos on Instagram as we scroll, or as we're in a conversation with a friend in our workplace, if you don't know the story of God, if you don't have a robust understanding of what is true, then you're subconsciously just going to opt to whatever the world tells you to believe. Simply reading from the teleprompter of the modern West. And this is why learning to think well is so important. Because there's all these competing ideas out there, these counter-narratives. And they promise life, they promise freedom and liberation, but they never deliver they say that your truest self is just on the other side, your happiest self is just on the other side of this next turn, but then you get to that next turn and you realize that, that you're just as, as depressed and lonely and anxious as you ever were before. You know, for a culture that promises freedom and liberation, do you know that we have, have higher depression and anxiety rates than ever before in human history? That does not sound like freedom to me. That sounds like trading one prison cell for another. That's what happens when we look for fulfillment and things that, that are incapable of filling us. I heard a, a helpful analogy over this last week uh, about a $20 bill. Do you know how professionals um, learn to identify a counterfeit 20 versus a real 20? The way that a professional learns to identify a counterfeit 20 is by spending a lot of time with a real 20 by learning what it feels like, the different textures, by smelling it, knowing the smell, the feel, crumpling it up, and knowing what it's like when it is crumpled, and the textures and all the rest of it. The way you spot counterfeit money is by spending a lot of time examining real money. And it's the same thing with our faith. It's the same with the story of God. In order to identify counterfeit stories in our world, we need to spend a lot of time in the story that is true. We need to be people who are rooted in the truth of Scripture, who let the, the message of Christ dwell in us richly, as the text says, so that when our faith is challenged, it doesn't crumble and fall, but it stands firm on the rock. And that's why our teaching team puts so much thought into in, and intention around these, these messages that we share across our church. 
because we understand that these are forming us and the kind of people we're becoming. And so we want to make sure that we're actually teaching Scripture and not just sharing some good moral ideas, that we're actually unpacking God's inspired Word and not just sharing five tips on how to have a great summer or whatever. This is also why we're so intentional with classes and conferences throughout the year. Um, maybe just a side note, I, I'm so looking forward to this class that we're launching on Tuesday nights, looking at the reality of, of the modern West and, uh, and, and values like freedom and kindness and equality and consent and, and many others that, that our society is starting to value, looking at how those actually come, they're rooted in the Christocentric ideology. They're actually rooted in the teachings of Jesus. Before Jesus and his church showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago, those were not things that humans uh, embraced or, or, or thought as normal. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Tuesday night, so you can join us here at the Mariner campus or online, but I encourage you to check that out. This is also, this, this, this value for truth, the importance of truth, is another reason why we, why we um, put so much thought and intention around gospel-central curriculum for our youth and our kids. Oh my goodness. I cannot imagine being a teenager right now, growing up in the midst of our, our cultural moment. It is a confusing time to be a teenager. And it's an especially difficult time to be a teenager seeking to follow Jesus. Like we really need to be praying for our teenagers and our kids and our youth. And if you're a parent, I just want you to know we are so in your corner as you seek to raise followers of Jesus in the midst of our current moment. But I also want to say that 90 minutes on a Thursday night at youth group is not enough formation for them to stand strong amidst the pressures of their world. We need to be talking to our kids about the ideologies of the world and the cultural, you know, what's going on in our culture and the truth of Scripture every single day. And if you don't know where to start when I say that, I want to invite you to, on December 3rd, we're actually bringing in Dr. Ian Proven, who's written extensively on this topic. And we're inviting him to come and to talk to parents about how do we raise kids who love Jesus in the midst of the world that we find ourselves in. So if you have kids, anywhere from zero to 18, or even if you're just interested, come on out, and, uh, and we'll tackle that important issue together. Okay, secondly, we are formed by our rhythms or our habits, the things that we do consistently over and over again, they have a very formational effect on us. Do you know that um, only 60% of the decisions that you make on a daily basis are conscious decisions? The other 40% of the decisions you make are subconscious decisions that are, that are made as a result of habit or muscle memory, or you could say of rhythms. Here's an example. I don't know if you've ever uh, moved to a new house and then after work, you've left work and actually driven to your old house. Has that ever happened to anyone before? Uh, when, when Jorley, my wife, and I moved from Surrey to Port Moody, that happened to me several times where I would kind of <laughs> wake up on the Portman Bridge and like, ah, where am I going? Which was especially bad when there was bridge tolls. But, um, but that, that happens as a result of habits. You're so used to leaving work and driving to that same place over and over and over again that your body goes into autopilot. And then you get into the car and you arrive at your old address instead of the, the one you're, you're trying to go to. And, that, and that's a really simple example. But I mention that to say that the things that we do repetitively, our daily rhythms have a very formative effect on us. In verse 16 of our text, Paul encourages us to be intentional about the rhythms of our lives. Look at verse 16. He says, Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. See, see, getting together and singing worship songs on a Sunday morning, that, that's a very intentional part of our Christian formation. 
Like, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we don't just do music at the start of our service so that you have time to get in here from the parking lot and sit down before the talk. <laughs> that time of worship on a Sunday morning is very important as we, as we reflect on the greatness of God and who he is. As we take time in our services to reflect on our own sinfulness and how we have fallen short, as we look at, 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 the, at, at the sacrifice of Jesus and how he has saved us, and all, all of these things, we're entering into a story as we sing over one another, the story of God. And so singing together is a very important rhythm for the Christian life. Coming together on Sunday mornings as, as the author of, of, um, of Ephesians and, all, and Hebrews and so many other authors instruct us to do in the Bible, uh, these important rhythms of coming together as the church. And so I just want to applaud those of you who are here this morning who have made Sunday mornings gathering together an important part of your week, who have prioritized this 90 minutes uh, from all the other things that are fighting for your attention. I just want to say, well done. This is such an important part of following Jesus. Gathering together each week as the family of God plays this important role. There's also several other rhythms that I think are worth mentioning this morning. Spiritual disciplines, as they've been commonly referred to throughout history. Habits that followers of Jesus have embraced for centuries to align their lives with God. There's things like, like, like Sabbath, for example. My wife and I have been embracing Sabbath um, for probably seven or eight years. We've been leaning into this, and it has had such a deeply formative effect on our spirituality. And here, here's really practically what it looks like for us. Um, one day every week, it's Fridays for us because Sundays are so busy with the services and things we got going on. But we intentionally on Fridays, we silence our, our, ourselves to the voice of the world. Like we literally turn off all of our devices. We power down our phones and our computers. We put them away. And we just spend that 24-hour block of time slowing down our hearts and our minds to be with God. So we spend 24 hours in rest and in worship. That's one of our weekly rhythms as a family. And now that we have two small kids, we, Kinsley and Harper, we invite them into that practice of Sabbath as well. And it's this opportunity every single Friday that we're presented with to talk to our kids about creation, that they're created in the image of God, that we rest because that's what we saw God do when he created the world, that we work and that we rest. It's also an opportunity for us to, to teach our kids week after week that our identity is not found in our work or what we produce that it's found in, in relationship with creator God. Another really formative rhythm is uh, silence and solitude, which is just a Christian-y way of saying being alone and being quiet. If you, if you take a look at all the gospel accounts, you see that this was a rhythm that Jesus himself regularly engaged with. He, he would be in, in crowds, he'd be at dinner parties, or he'd be preaching to thousands of people and healing people and engaged in life and ministry, and then he would withdraw to be alone with God, to be alone with the Father. And so for me, in my current moment, where there's not a lot of free time throughout the day to kind of step aside and be in silence, it looks like getting up early before the rest of my family's awake, just to take some time to sit with a cup of coffee and scripture, and just take a few breaths before the day starts. Okay, maybe you're, you're hearing me talk about rhythms right now, and you're like, <clears throat> you know, Sam, I'm so glad that that works so well for you. That's awesome. I am not a rhythms person. Okay, I'm not, I'm not really that kind of person. But can I just share a quick rebuttal and say, yes, you are. You might not be intentional about your rhythms, but we all engage in daily habits that are forming the kind of people that we're becoming. For example, here's a really common one in the morning. <laughs> like, what's the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? After you've kind of hit snooze a couple of times. For most people, I'll go to the bathroom, that's a good one. 
But for most people, they, they open up their phone and they just start to doom scroll on social media at all the things. And, and so that itself is a rhythm, waking up in the morning, opening up your phone and looking at what's going on. And I would say, how is that going for you? Is that making you more peaceful as you start your day? Or is it starting with anxiety and stress as the world is already running ahead of you and you're just trying to catch up? That's a rhythm. And you better believe that that opening up your phone or social media in the morning is having an effect on your day. But is it cultivating the kind of inner peace that we're after? Okay, we need to keep moving, but I just want to say this. Is there a rhythm in your life or a habit that you might need to replace in order to be intentional about your formation? Maybe it is replacing scrolling in the morning with just a few moments of silence before you start your day. Maybe it's refusing to touch your phone before 9 a.m. Is that crazy? Maybe. Maybe it's making Sunday morning a priority every single week rather than coming every four to six weeks or when it's convenient, saying, no, that's a rhythm I am going to engage in every single week to intentionally come and be restored by the gospel. We are all shaped by our rhythms. Okay, lastly, I want to talk about community. We're formed by the people we surround ourselves with. I want you to notice all the communal references that are in our passage, Colossians chapter 3. For example, it's not as God's chosen person, we're God's chosen people. Clothe yourselves, he says. Forgive one another. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And it's not just in this text. All throughout the the New Testament, dozens and dozens of times, the different authors keep coming back to this idea of, of being together, of one another. All throughout the New Testament, here's the bottom line. In order to grow in your faith, you need a friend. There's this guy named John Newton, and if you've been around Pastor David ever, you've heard of John Newton before. But he lived in the 18th century, and uh, he was a former slave trader. He came to faith in Jesus. But after coming to faith in Jesus, he actually, for a period of time, returned to the slave trade, to the slave ships. It was this really dark moment in Newton's life. Because even though he had given his life to Jesus, he found himself doing a lot of the same things that he was doing before, kind of falling into a lot of the same patterns over and over again. And it wasn't until he entered this relationship with a guy named Alexander Clooney that his life actually started to change. As Clooney challenged him and encouraged him, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you acting that way? That doesn't align with Jesus and his way and was was pushing him to surrender all areas of his life to Jesus. And I've seen that to be true in my own life. Nothing has the ability to form us like our friends do. And if you're a parent in this room, you would know this because you've seen it in your kids. Nothing has a forming effect on them like, like the people that they surround themselves with. And when they're around people who, who, who are a good influence on them, when they're around a good crowd, that has very important effects on them. When they're around a, like a, a not-so-good crowd, that also has very formative effects on them. And it's not only true of, of kids or of teenagers. It's true of all of us. We are a product of the people that we surround ourselves with. We're we're a product of the people we hang out with. And so let me ask you this. How are your friendships forming you? Are the people that you're surrounding yourself with, are they bringing out the best in you? Are they pointing you towards Jesus? Or are they pulling you away from him? Or maybe I'll ask this other question. Do you have friendships at all? I don't mean people you see at work and talk to at the water cooler or maybe that you kind of message on Instagram or play video games with online. But are there people who, who really know you? Like not a projected version of yourself, but the real you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. 
Because you won't make it in this life. You won't make it in the Christian faith without friends. And this is why we place such a high value on community as a church. This is why oftentimes we have coffee and food after service. A lot of people say, wow, you guys spend a lot of time and money on food. And it's true. We do, but that's very intentional. Because food creates this vehicle for friendships and community to happen. And so, and so that's the reasons that we do those sorts of things as a church. Uh, that's also the reason that we do community groups as a church. If you're new to, to our church family, maybe you're visiting today, you might not know this, but community groups are the lifeblood of CA Church. There's over 50 groups that meet all throughout the Tri-Cities throughout the week. And, uh, and, and they meet to practice the way of Jesus together in a small group. Groups of 10 to 15 friends who, who meet in homes, oftentimes around food, and they eat together, and they learn together, and they build relationships, and they serve beside each other. Um, Jorley and I um, actually started a community group, um, not this summer, but the summer before, essentially because I felt like if I was going to be calling our church to be in community groups, I better be in one myself. I was kind of begrudgingly joining a community group. Um, but I have found it to be such a gift in my life. And Wednesday nights, in so many ways, have become one of the highlights of my week as we gather with this group of people who started as strangers, but now are actually like really close, even family to us. And we journey through the highs and the lows of life, the ups and the downs. But I, I would imagine there's also people here today that as I talk about these kind of deep friendships, maybe to you that, that sounds incredibly scary. Is because of experiences you've had where you have kind of tried to step out in the past and tried to build friendships and hasn't gone so well. Maybe it's because of trauma in your past or whatever it might be. Maybe you're even wondering, like, is it worth it? Like, I hear you talking about the importance of community. Is it worth it? Is it worth the effort it would take to step into something like that? To get to know people, to build trust. And on top of that, am I just opening myself up to more hurt? I think the answer to all those questions is, is, probably, is probably yes. Getting close to other people can be so scary. It can be messy because we're all flawed human beings. But it's also so worth it because we were made for relationship. God made us for relationship with one another and with him. And the reality is as you grow in relationships, you might get hurt. The possibility of that reality actually even shows up in our text. You notice Paul talks about the need to forgive one another. You don't have to forgive people unless they've hurt you. But here's the truth. We both hurt and we heal in the context of community. We both hurt and heal in community. We can absolutely get hurt by other people, and that's hard, and that sucks, and I've been there before. But we also heal in the presence of community. When we open ourselves up and allow ourselves to be vulnerable despite all the risks of doing so, God seems to use community. And we see this throughout the New Testament. You know, all the different churches that letters are written to, and they are a mess. <laughs> there's all sorts of dysfunction, and there's all sorts of disagreements and conflict. And, but it's also this beautiful mosaic of people coming together and saying, despite our differences, and despite the fact that you said that in a way that kind of hurt my feelings, we're going to follow Jesus together. And God seems to use it over and over and over again to form us into his image. Okay, here's how we're going to close our time together. First, I want to summarize one more time those, those pieces, those pieces of community. So, so formation happens with the collision of three things. The collision of truth, of rhythms, and community. So the sweet spot, can you put that diagram back up on the screen? The sweet spot that we want to live in as a church is that middle where the overlapping of all three circles. 
where we're being storied by the gospel, where we understand truth so deeply in our hearts, where we take our our rhythms, the practices of our day-to-day life seriously as we follow Jesus, and then we do it all in the context of friendship and following Jesus together. Okay, here's how I want to close. I want to invite in just a moment Pastor Ryan to come up. And uh, we're kicking off community groups this week. So I think there'll be 50 or or maybe 53 groups that are going to be meeting all across the Tri-Cities. And so we want to take some time to pray. So much of this happens in the context of those groups that meet in homes. And so Pastor Ryan oversees all those groups, and so he's going to come up and, and, and pray. And so we want to pray. If you're a community group leader or if you're in a community group, we just want to pray that God would do a deeply formative work in our hearts and our lives as we come together in this way and seek to grow in our faith together. So actually right now, I want to invite up Pastor Ryan to come and to pray. If you're a community group leader, and we've had them across all our different services this morning, but if you're here today, you're a community group leader, come on up and join us at the front as well. And we want to pray over you as you lead. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermon,